Happy Bitcoin Friday, freaks. It's your host, Odell, here for another SIL Dispatch, the show focused on actionable Bitcoin and freedom tech discussion. I have a very, have a very great guest uh, in the house today uh, for today's show. But before I get there, I'm just going to do a really quick um, intro to the show. As always, Citadel Dispatch is funded by you guys. We have no ads, no sponsors, purely funded by Bitcoin donations from our audience. I want to thank everyone who continues to support the show. All the links are at CitadelDispatch.com. If you want to donate uh, with Bitcoin, you can go to CitadelDispatch.com slash donate. Like I said, all sats are appreciated. Thank you for your support. You can also support the show on Podcasting 2.0 apps by streaming sats directly to me as you listen to the show. You simply pick the value that you think the show provides on a sats per minute basis, and then it will stream me sats uh, as you listen directly to my Bitcoin node. We also... At Dispatch, we have a live audience. Uh, that live audience beams in from YouTube, Twitch, and Matrix. Huge shout out to all the freaks who join us in the live chat and make this show unique. You guys are also the hosts, and I do appreciate you joining. Last but not least, I know it's a bear market. I know it's a recession. If you can't spare any Bitcoin, your support by sharing the show, subscribing to the show, sharing with friends and family, leaving reviews on all platforms, that helps. It's available on all podcast apps. You simply search Silla Dispatch. Before we get started and I introduce my fantastic guest today, I just want to read a couple of boostergrams that people have left uh, for the previous episodes. A boostergram is when you support the show with Bitcoin, you can leave a message attached to it. We have at Juicy Disco with 80,000 sats saying, Citadel Dispatch is an invaluable source of learning. It's been extremely beneficial for my Bitcoin journey the last couple of years. Also, thanks for the response to my question regarding UTXO management from a fee perspective on Noster. Stay humble and stack sats. We have Eric99 with 50,000 sats saying one sat equals one sat. Makes sense to me. We have Oscar Mary of Fountain Podcasts with 100,000 sats saying great content this week, Matt. Excited for all these new lightning features. Bolt 12, async payments. Let's go. We have at SourceWire with 21,000 sats saying, absolute pleasure listening to the vast knowledge base Steve has. Love the show. Thanks you. Thanks to you both. Okay, with all that, let's get that out of the way. Thank you for, for standing by with me, Lionel. We have Lionel Shriver on the show today, author of Mandibles. Uh, Lionel, welcome. Pleasure to talk to you. It's been a while since I talked about this book. This is all we talk about, Lionel. All we talk about is mandibles, week in and week out. So, um, I don't know where we should start. I mean, you wrote mandibles in 2016. I'm curious. Or I wrote it earlier than that because that's oh, when it was published. <laughs> fair enough. I, I want to get maximum credit for prescience. When did so you I, When did I you start writing it? it? In 2015. Probably started it in 2014. And what was the inspiration? 2008. 2008 was the inspiration. It was kind of obvious. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. It was my, 2008 shaped my youth and was one of the reasons why I found Bitcoin in the first place. Well, it was, uh, it changed my feeling about the whole world. And it made, it made the world seem so much more fragile than it had before. I had, and I, 
I have to say that previous to the near collapse of the entire international fiscal system, I uh, was extremely bored by economics. I thought, you know, unemployment rates and and varying levels of currency and compared to each other, and it, it just all put me to sleep. And I never read the business pages. Uh, I only used them to clean the window of my wood stove. <laughs> um, and then suddenly economics got very interesting indeed. And I'm always on the lookout for something new to be fascinated by. So I didn't resist it. And uh, oh, during this uh, post near apocalypse period, uh, I bought a house in London and that was really interesting because of course it entailed a big whack of my assets and just even moving around money at that time felt extremely dangerous and you weren't really advised to put more than the amount that the government guaranteed as if the government could actually guarantee that much money across the board. So that's an, that's, misguided and deluded to begin with um, that the government will ever make you whole if this shit goes completely to hell. Um, right. But nevertheless, being careful, I, you know, I only put like 50,000 pounds into, into each uh, account. And I had to establish all these different bank accounts with all these different banks because any of them could at any at any time simply collapse. So, I mean, it would, I, I can't tell you how much bother it was. I don't have a lot of patience with paperwork. And, and just shipping the money around was a huge project. And, uh, and when I remember that period, that's what I remember is, is going from bank to bank along the, the high street of my then neighborhood and establishing a new account at each one of them, just in order to make one transaction. Um, and it, it, almost, it yeah, shook me up. And, and so when I got the idea for this book, I started doing uh, a lot of reading or what for me is a lot of reading in nonfiction because I have a uh, little appetite for, or I used to have a little appetite for nonfiction. I'm a spoiled fiction writer who likes to read made up fairy stories. Um, and, uh, and I discovered that the, the, the new nonfiction in economics is anything but boring. It is, it is apocalyptic. It is about the end of the world. And uh, I haven't completely kept up with what's out there most recently because I don't have the same motivation. And, you know, I naturally moved on to other books that had other topics um, but I don't have any time for climate change. Okay. I'm not worried about the temperature of the planet, which has only increased, uh, since the beginning of the industrial revolution, barely over a degree centigrade. And, 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 you know, I'm sorry that that just doesn't scare the shit out of me. And, um, and I don't confuse climate and weather, unlike, the rest of the media, but uh, I'm terrified of financial collapse and 
that has not changed. Sometimes when I write a book, I kind of write myself out of my own anxieties. Uh, I don't know, when I finished Big Brother, uh, my obesity book, I think I stopped worrying about getting fat. <laughs> I was done with that. Um, but I'm afraid that the anxiety that man that motivated the mandibles has done nothing but accelerate. Be because the big the big concern, of course, is burgeoning debt, and it just gets worse. Nothing nothing was learned from 2008 at all. The overall debt burden worldwide is way bigger than it ever was. And at a certain point, the Ponzi scheme, like all Ponzi schemes, falls apart. And what's horrifying about the death of this Ponzi scheme is that, it, yes, it, it entails the, the almost theoretical loss of a lot of wealthy people who didn't really create anything or you know it's all numerical they're just lucky and then they're unlucky and that doesn't seem to matter that much morally it's still systemically disturbing but it's it's you know it's what comes around goes around but what we're all what we would also be looking at is the loss of life savings of people that did make something and believed in the system and believed it was possible to save for their retirement and and made sacrifices for that and didn't get the newest computer and didn't install a swimming pool or you know or didn't go out to eat every night they 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 embraced the idea that money has value and will continue to do so and i I just I just think that's the the threat is is across the board. First of all, disorder and violence, uh, and also just a complete collapse of of social faith, and 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 inevitably a a very dangerous uh, Darwinian world in which you no longer have social co cooperation. Money is one of the main media that create, that creates social cooperation. It makes us, makes it possible for us to trade apples for oranges, you know, and every, every time, every time I want to get groceries, I don't want to have to write a short story. Uh, and I think I'd have to write a lot of short stories even to get a bag of apples. <laughs> so, uh, it's massively more important for social order and for the kind of complex systems we have constructed than, than the temperature, the temperature. It's just, I'm sorry. Um, and I'm afraid that we more or less learned the wrong thing from 2008. What, what we seem to have learned is, oh, I see. Uh, Everything almost fell apart, but it didn't, so it won't. You know, and I'm sorry, but that's not that's not the lesson. We were very lucky. Uh, government stepped in, and things fell apart on a scale that government was was ca still capable of influencing the outcome. 
right? So, but when we, we're rapidly approaching a time when the problem is government, right? Yes. It's, it is the government that doesn't have any money. It is the government that is producing money that is completely worthless in vast quantity, you know, in order to cover its own backside. And then government isn't the answer. So I, you know, I'm very, I have to say, I'm very sympathetic with the cryptocurrency motivation. And uh, I love the idea of money that is taken away from government. Uh, I, I love the idea of, of, of a world in which the government actually has to borrow from an external ent entity instead of from itself, which is a contradiction in terms. Uh, but I have been disappointed in the reality of, of crypto and Same. I have not, have not personally invested in it uh, out of a kind of, well, natural distrust of the new, uh, uh, out of a distrust of what has proven very volatile in a way that I don't have a stomach for. I'm one of those people who doesn't like to um, put a quarter into a, a, a one-armed bandit because I might lose 25 cents. I'm, I am really like Protestant and safey, safey. And uh, if it were up to me, I wouldn't be in the um, stock market at all. I would just be in a savings account that paid 5%. Not that you can get that even now, but um, I don't, I don't like risk. And so far, Bitcoin is still seemingly very risky. No, 100%. Um, I mean, Lionel, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first of all, I, I would like to say that I agree with pretty much everything you just said. You sound exactly like a Bitcoiner. Uh, I, I mean, you sound, you sound like pretty much everyone in the audience can relate to you right now. Um, I think the first part that was really interesting to me is, is this idea of 2008 being forgotten. Um, I don't even know if it was the wrong lessons were learned. I almost feel like no lessons were learned. I, I feel oh, yeah. like people well, just swept it under the rug. Well, it was unpleasant. Uh, it's just like COVID. Nobody wants to think about COVID anymore. So we can't go, we, we, we don't wish to go through the exercise of realizing that idiotically we shut down entire economies for month upon month, really the better part of two years in some places. I'm in the UK right now. It was horrific. And they did themselves incredible damage. But nobody even wants to review that because it was an icky time. Yep. Right? Ooh, I don't remember. I don't want to remember the icky time. So let's just shove it under the carpet and we won't, we're not going to contemplate the fact that oh, it turns out that literally overnight we were willing to sacrifice every civil liberty we ever had. And I'm afraid that the uh, near financial collapse of 2008, and it's interesting, we have all different names for it. There's never been, we've never arrived at a name for it. And I think that's telling. You know, it was a the great recession for a while, but you've noticed that hasn't stuck um, right. Nothing is stuck. It started out here as the credit crunch, which sounds like a candy bar. <laughs> um, 
Oh, the credit crunch. Do you want a credit crunch? You want some with peanuts? Um, and, and, and it was so trivializing. It was ludicrous. But no, we do not revisit it. It's just an icky time. And you're totally right. There were no lessons learned. Uh, slightly more capitalization of banks. But when you're talking about funny money, what does it matter? Right. And I, I have mean, to say, yeah, my, I, 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 live with, I live with this fear in a very real-world, day-to-day way. Um, I have been, for a fiction writer of all things, pretty successful. And there aren't very many of us out there. And for half of my career, I made practically no money um, and was still working very hard. I'm not going to be apologetic here. I get tired of people apologizing for having any assets. I have some assets. I worked really hard for them. And most of my luck in the market or any other kind of investment has been very poor. So steadily, what assets I am managing to accrue, they don't grow in that way that, that you know, you're told that they're supposed to. It just hasn't happened. So... And I'm getting older, for fuck's sake. And I don't know how many books I've got more in me. Uh, maybe I'll run out of ideas. I want, I want to be able to buy a chicken and a bottle of wine until I'm 89. I don't ask much more. But when money becomes worthless, you can't even buy a chicken and a bottle of wine. And so, you know, I'm, I'm completely baffled by what to do with my investments. Uh, right now, I've stuck some of it into, you know, 3% CDs, which is better than nothing. But I know perfectly well that I'm kidding myself because when you've got a, a 10% inflation rate, uh, you're losing 7%. And then you have to pay taxes on the 3%. So basically you get dick, right? Yep. And... And my, feel, my feeling is, A, none of this is, is fair. And B, why do I have to live with this constant anxiety? Uh, I am constantly worried that the entire fiscal world on which my assets are built, most of them still in dollars, uh, that, it, that it's just going to collapse like a house of cards and I will be left with nothing. And I wish I thought that this was neurotic, but I don't think it is neurotic. I'm just curious, did you happen to read the op-ed? I hardly ever read op-eds in the New York Times for, for obvious reasons. Um, but this one was one of the guest essays. And it was in the last week about the entitlement programs in the U.S. Did not. Did you read it? It was fucking terrifying. Um and it's based on recent, uh, you know, what office of whatever figures. They're not, you know, right. not some fringe group concocting scare stories. But it, by 2050, just in terms of, you know, looking at the way the entitlements are structured now, if nothing is done, uh, we're going to be... I think the figure is $117 trillion in debt, sovereign debt. 
that boggles the mind. And, 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 and meanwhile, you've got Biden talking about how, you know, both programs are safe and he's not going to make any changes to them and everyone's going to get their social security and everyone's going to be able to live to 110 and be dependent on Medicare and get their knees replaced three times. And, uh, it, none of it adds up. Right. Uh, the, the age structure in the United States, it doesn't add up. And I don't, I'm sorry, I don't care how many illiterates cross the border. Um, that's not going to change the big economic picture that you're going to have way too many old people like me, um, depending on practically nobody working. And, you know, this is not a long-term future. It used to be that when you were talking about 2030 or 2050, it was just off in the distance. You know, who cares? Who cares? It was never going to happen to you. But I mean, I'll tell you, one of the things that motivated me to write the mandibles, because I've been reading many, many figures, environmental and economic figures that often, you know, stop at 2050. That's just because we're, you know, we're a society obsessed with base 10. Yeah, so, we like round numbers. Yeah, we love we love round numbers in base 10. And and I, I sat down one day and I calculated if I lived, for example, as long as my paternal grandfather did, who's two generations behind me, so should really have a, a smaller life expectancy than, than my own generation. But if I lived to 96, as he did, uh, I'd live to two. 2052. Fuck me. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I was terrified and disappointed. I didn't think, oh, goody, I'm going to live to see, you know, many more technological miracles created. And, and I'll find out what, what happens to all these exciting human stories that I've been following. You know, I'm going to live much more, much more into this century uh, than I expected. No, I was filled with dread and horror. I don't want to be alive in 2050, much less at the age of 53 or I mean 93, you know, <laughs> barely able to walk or, or string a sentence together. Uh, I, I don't want to be, as we say so incessantly now, vulnerable right. at that time. Because it's, if you look at all the figures, that's by then, if not way before, is is when everything is going to fall apart. And yeah, it might happen sooner. And and again, I think the problem will be economic. Now, the the other thing to bear in mind, if you're apocalyptically inclined, um, is that Guilty. most disasters do not occur in a vacuum they interact with other disasters so that any economic collapse is inevitably going to entail huge political conflict and possibly military conflict. Always has. I mean, I, it was, I tried to cover the bases in the mandibles, but the truth is that the mandibles is much more modest in scale than I think the real threat is. Uh, for one thing, I just wasn't really up for writing a novel that was based on the experience of a single family. 
right. uh, that also uh, entailed the collapse of the entire world, right? Uh, so I kept, uh, I kept the fiscal collapse to the United States, and specifically now, almost in New York, right? Yes, of course. And then we experienced that locally, yeah, uh, as one would. Uh, but I would say that that's the one unrealistic thing about the plot, and I knew it at the time. I did this on purpose. It was to do myself a favor. I, I just didn't want to get into <laughs> India and Africa and Europe and all that shit. Russia. Uh, it was yeah. It was too much to take on. I'm not that ambitious a novelist. So artificially, I kind of drew a a circle around the United States, and I allowed the U.S. to operate in isolation. And the rest of the world sealed itself off from the U.S. with this new currency. Um, and the nobody's dealing with dollars anymore. I mean, I tried to put it together in a credible way, but I actually believe it to be completely incredible. I do not believe that the way things are put together right now, the U.S. can collapse economically and not bring everyone else with it. Yeah, we're the reserve currency of the world. So if we and we're already yes. kind of seeing so that, that is right? one that is what and that's what the book begins with. And I think that that's what Americans uh, take for granted that the that the dollar is the international reserve currency. They don't even know what it means. Most of them. Um, but but in not knowing what it means, they also don't know how dependent they are on being the reserve currency and how much the U.S. gets away with murder economically. Uh, and generates vastly more dollars than than it should possibly be, be be able to without creating hyperinflation. That's right. that's really the secret is the is the reserve currency. So that all over the world, uh, other countries and other banks are using dollars and therefore have dollars uh, to trade in things like commodities, oil whatever, and to pay their own debts. Uh, all, all countries are not allowed to borrow in their own currency. A lot of them have to borrow in dollars. Right. It makes it possible for us to have generated vast numbers of dollars that are, we are not using in the United States. If the U.S. ever, if the U.S. dollar ever lost that position, then all of those dollars would flood our country. Because it's like, I'm sorry, we don't use these anymore. We don't need them. Take them back. Guess what that would do to the the value of the dollar, and that and yet, U.S. authorities who who do nothing but abuse the dollar uh, think they can continue continue to do that infinitely because they are complacent and arrogant and stupid. Yeah, and there's mean, nothing to con there's nothing to prevent a consortium of other countries from coming along and saying. We don't want to use the dollar anymore. Well, so the way I kind of look at it, currently I'm, I'm looking at everything unfolding, um, is is what we're what we're kind of witnessing right now is is the U.S. is exporting our inflation around the world to all these lesser economies, and so those economies we're starting to see them falter first, and after they falter, then it kind of comes home to roost here in America. And then you see, you see like a whole global crisis kind of happen at the same time. And so then the question is, when trust breaks down in that situation, where do financial markets move from that point forward? How do people do any kind of financial transaction, whether that's 
nation states doing you know billions of dollars in trade or if that's a person going to buy chicken and wine well the whole system is actually based on trust i'm sure i'm not telling you anything you don't know uh it's a kind of religious faith right the value of money is created by everyone believing in the value of money you know i think that's in the mandibles that it's a. Uh, I read that like belief in Tinkerbell, right? And that's what keeps Tinkerbell on the air is that everyone believes it. And the other great binder uh, is it's is self-interest. So it's not in our interest for money to be worthless. So we're going to continue to behave as if it, it, it has value. And that, that has worked after a fashion. And in fact, better than you would have ever expected. Most of these currencies should have gone to shit a long time ago including the dollar but it's but the that prospect is so horrifying hold on you're good just a second i'm sorry it's probably my husband you're good he didn't get my email family's important <laughs> hey listen you didn't get my email no i told you not to not to facetime me right now of course i'm a podcast you're on TV. <laughs> when? When? Okay, I'm going to give me 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Okay. Bye. My co host on my other show, his dad always calls while we're recording and he gives weather updates. <laughs> well, Jeff says, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Sorry about that. You're good. Um, where were we? Yeah. I mean, trust every, uh, all, our whole lives rely on different trust relationships, but mm -hmm. especially money. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what really hit me hard writing the book is how dependent we are on money. And everyone thinks in terms of, oh, we're dependent on having enough of it so that we can buy what we need. But that's not what I mean, obviously. We're right. dependent on the functionality of money, however much we have of it, that it still, it still buys things. It is still accepted in trade for real things. And it's actually a kind of miracle that money works at all and that I can give you a piece of paper, much less a, a, th a purely disembodied theoretical set of digits with a little piece of plastic or by punching keys. Uh, and you'll, you'll give me a car. <laughs> I mean, fucking hell, you'll give me a car. Um, and that, that is, that's a miracle. And right. that's, that's a great creation, but it's like any kind of creation. It's, it's hard to create. It's easy to destroy. And, you know, ever since the advent of fiat currencies, governments in particular have been out to destroy it, to abuse it. Right. And Yeah, and people don't realize it's a relatively new phenomenon, this idea of just government-issued fiat. Absolutely. 70s, yeah. Based on nothing. And, you know, the, the threat initially was, of course, well, if it's based on nothing and governments are unconstrained from making up as much of it as they want 
then what's to stop them from infinitely creating more until it's completely worthless? And it hasn't taken as long as you might expect, i.e. five minutes, but it's still happening. Right. And this debt thing, it's still, I mean, who thinks that the, the U.S. government is ever going to pay back the, what is it, $31.5 trillion <laughs> that, strictly speaking, we owe? Is it ever going to, does that number ever come down? No, not with the entitlement situation we've got now. It's not ever going to come down. If it's never going to come down, it's never it's never being repaid. So, yeah, I mean, that's never going to happen. And the only safe assumption is that, of course, governments are going to abuse their power. And, of course, corrupt individual in, individuals in those governments will abuse their power. And that's the only way you can operate is under that assumption. And that's what we're seeing play out in real time. Um, so, I mean... In mandibles, in the mandibles, gold plays a major. I mean, you gave us one line on Bitcoin. You said Bitcoin. And remember what happened to Bitcoin? Uh, I don't. But gold. <laughs> I haven't read the book in years. You have a single line. It's like page forty-two or something like that. It's just like, uh, just rem- <laughs> just remember what happens to remember what happened to Bitcoin. You just kind of left us on that. But I, well, I like to think you know, that was. If a, I may expand, uh, yeah, if I were writing it. it today, I'd probably give it a little more time. A little more space. Um, but the the danger that Bitcoin and any other rival currency has is that government does not want to give up money. Right. Agreed. And it won't. They won't. And they can take you over and they can they can make trading in Bitcoin illegal and arrest you. They can do whatever they want. I mean, that's the other thing in my horrifying political maturity uh i have had to realize and we 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 tend to be complacent about these things but government can do anything we want that's what we learned during the pandemic government can do anything it seems constrained by all these little constitutional things but that's just so much paper in fact they've got the military and they can do anything and therefore if you're doing something they don't like they can make you stop. So if the only thing that Bitcoin's got going for it right now is failure, as long as it doesn't work, like it's too volatile or it's too much trouble for for vendors to accept uh, or it has failed to build the kind of trust we're talking about, uh, then they'll leave you alone. But success would be deadly. The U.S. government will not allow a rival currency outside of government to thrive. It will not. It will stop. That's what all this digital currency nonsense from the Fed is all about. It's like, no, no, we're going to do it. Uh, They're definitely going to try. So, I mean, I want to unpack all of this. Uh, But where I was going, first of all, I just want to be absolutely clear. You somehow wrote the single best Bitcoin book that exists. And you weren't a Bitcoiner. You only mentioned Bitcoin once uh-huh. in the whole in the in the whole book. But you somehow wrote the Bitcoin book. And when I was talking about 2008, how people forget the reason I always talk about the mandibles is because it's a really easy way for someone to to remember the the issues we had with 2008 and kind of put it in a forward, kind of actionable, kind of thought process. 
um, of, of how they can think about these situations and these concerns um, and these systemic failures in our society, uh, they can conceptualize it in their own world, right? In their, their own world going forward. Um, but so the, the reason I think, and I've noticed, I've, I've read a lot of commentary about the mandibles. Um, uh, it's a very provocative book, as, uh, especially since it's become more prescient lately and people are starting to see the crumbling issues with our societies. Um, people get very up in arms and, and, and they push back against it. And I think coming from a Bitcoin audience, we don't necessarily see it that way because you didn't really explore the Bitcoin side of things. And, and in your scenario, Bitcoin has failed. Um, but in our scenario, in our life today, Bitcoin is hope to us, right? Like I was I was a, a young kid getting shaped by 2008, getting shaped by the Snowden disclosures where I found out all the tech companies were also spying on us um, and they were complicit in all this government surveillance. And I was very disenfranchised. Like I did not see a, a, a situation where I could have children, that I could have a family and that 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 things would be all right. Right. But then I discovered the, the open source movement. I discovered Bitcoin. And to me, that gives me hope. Um, and, and, and that's why we're able to read the mandibles in a in a way that doesn't is not necessarily I don't want to say like doomer. Right. Not necessarily like a negative light, um, because we already see these systemic issues. And Bitcoin wasn't around in this in this storyline, right? But maybe in, in, in this future storyline, in reality, um, Bitcoin actually lessens those blows. I don't think it will necessarily stop chaos from happening and stop financial collapse. Um, but it will it will lessen the blow. It will allow the darkness to be shorter than it would have otherwise. Because we'd have a money that doesn't require trust, that isn't run by governments, that isn't run by corporations, that any individual can use to save, to spend without permission. Um, and maybe we haven't had the biggest target on our back yet, but the target has been growing and Bitcoin continues to truck on and continues to grow. And Bitcoin is built in a way that is is adversarial to it's built in a way that is designed to survive in adversarial environments. And, and, and you know, I wanted to, you mentioned earlier about cryptocurrency hasn't lived up to its expectations and the hype and all this stuff. The overwhelming majority of cryptocurrencies, except for Bitcoin, are not designed to be robust and censorship resistant in an adversarial environment. They simply aren't. They are mostly, there's a ton of Ponzi schemes. Get rich quick schemes. They're centrally controlled. They're easy to regulate. We're seeing regulations pop up all over the place on centralized entities that exist in the industry. But Bitcoin is designed in a way that there is no central actor. So who do you pressure to stop it? Um, I don't want to go. I I I kind of want you. <laughs> there's so much to unpack here, and not that much time. Um, but you mentioned. Well, I mean, yeah, I have to say, look, I have not made uh, a special study of Bitcoin. I am not any kind of crypto expert. Uh, you kind of are. I, all I can do is is wish you well, uh, with a certain skepticism, and to warn you about what could happen if oh, it finally really starts to work. Uh, 
So I, what I wanted I to talk about. Allowed Lionel, to go ahead, but then you know I've got, I've got a paranoid streak. So let's let's talk about the lens of gold and mandibles, right? So mm -hmm. obviously gold was positioned as an alternative to the banker and the failing dollar. Mm -hmm. um, and you basically set up that exact scenario that we we're just talking about now with Bitcoin, right? That the first thing the U.S. government did was they went after gold holders and the gold yep. economy. And you know that that, that legislation from... The 1930s is still on the books. Yes, well aware. Yep. Executive right. Order 6102. Good for you. Um, it's one of and, our favorite executive orders here. And it, right? it, here it, in, the it in fact space. inhibits me personally from investing in gold appreciably. Uh, right. The, the government keeps track of gold very carefully, and they have the legal right to take it away from you. Yes. And that's not a good asset. Of course, as I was pointing out, since government can do anything, they have the right to take anything away from you. Everything you own is provisional. They can take your house. They can take. They can commandeer all the money in your account. Pass the law tomorrow. You know, take the clothes off their off your back. Uh, doesn't bear thinking about all the time because who wants to live in that downer universe? But, but yep, um, all our rights, so called, are provisional. Um, I mean, I, I honestly came away f w w from that book thinking there, there was no resort. I envy you, your, your feeling that you found one. Uh, well, we have no choice. And, I, and I can see how that would make you feel more, um, confident and powerful and independent of all these systems that are now so fragile. Uh, and I do nothing but encourage you. I don't, I don't know whether crypto has the capacity. Not crypto, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, sorry. I can see you're touchy on that point. Um, I don't know whether you, you'd effectively construct a, a, a financial bunker for yourselves and, and other Bitcoin investors if the world fell apart. Personally, I came to the conclusion that what, what I'm afraid of is on such a scale that there is no safe harbor. And the only thing that I would have to comfort myself is that I have already lived a really good life. And so if it goes to shit, I, I still, it, it went better than most people's historically. And that's about all I would cling to because rescuing even real things that you technically own in a situation of total chaos doesn't guarantee that you get to keep them. And that's what I tried to illustrate in the latter part of the mandibles before we get to the second part, which we, I never discuss with anyone because I don't want to blow the ending. So we, maybe we can get to that, but, uh, you know, technically the family still owns a house, right? right. But it doesn't matter. 
because they don't have a gun and someone with a gun can kick them out of their house. So much for owning a house, you know, so much, oh, I've got this asset worth so much. And if I'm really desperate, I can always downsize or something. Not necessarily. I mean, that's just one more system that can break down. So anything that you own, you know, even a pound of hamburger you're bringing home from the supermarket can be taken away from you by somebody who has a sock full of loose change with which he can wallop you over the head. In fact, that's an interesting scene. It's so small, but it's the first time that our hero, our stealth hero, as I like to think of him, uh, does something bad. Willing. Yeah. And, you know, he mugs a little kid. He's only about 10 years old for his groceries. And it's unpleasant. But it's an illustration of, you know, no matter how virtuous your character, you're going to cross these lines if it's a matter of survival. And that's where Willing crosses the line. And it's a it's a touching and depressing tiny scene, but I think it's it's morally and symbolically very important to the book. No, I mean, I felt that as well while I was reading it. Um, I mean, this, it you know, ultimately at the end of the day, Bitcoin is is a tool, right? It is one tool in a toolbox. Uh, there is a very there's a lot of corollaries in the Bitcoin community on just sustainability, localism, um, self-defense, right? The right to bear arms in America, at least among the American Bitcoiners. Um, and that's why I say like you kind of hit all the you hit all the pieces. Um, well, I should I should remark on that point in particular that uh, previously I have been a. I would say a trite liberal on uh, gun control issues. And, uh, you know, I made my reputation uh, on uh, my seventh novel, We Need to Talk yep. About Kevin, which is, it's not about a school shooting, actually. Everyone uh, often forgets that because they didn't want to get into the gun control debate. Right. Uh, I was interested in looking at pure malice. Uh, without worrying about what the weapon was. So he uses a crossbow. Nevertheless, I have inevitably got dragged into all kinds of gun control debates and generally fall on the control side, partly out of sheer self-interest because um, I don't want to be shot <laughs> right. by some lunatic. And my main concern with the whole Second Amendment thing is that the proportion of insane people in the human race is simply too high. And in, in, in the United States, it, it's, it's clearly about, about twice the percentage of any other country. So when I was writing the mandibles, I rather surprised myself because I didn't see how my family was going to surprise without, survive without a gun and willing being the savviest of the lot is the one who goes and gets one. And this is actually contrary to my standard politics because I don't like the idea of um, 
necessarily encouraging people to arm themselves, but I thought that the, the scenario that I had constructed, that's what you would do. That was what you would have to do unless you were a fucking idiot. So, yep. so that's where they end up. And that gun ends up being rather important. Well, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I mean, it takes place in New York, which has, you know, very, very strict gun control laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to me, I mean, maybe it was my own bias reading into it. Right. But it's a clear perspective where like gun control laws and you hear it all the time. It's like the most common narrative. Right. It's the most common messaging point on people like myself that are that are pro freedom in that regard is that gun control laws do not stop bad people from getting guns. Right. And the only real protection you have is to learn how to use them yourself, get comfortable using them yourself and use them in a safe way, of course. Um, But ultimately, it's just another tool to empower individuals. And ultimately, I think as a society, um, the more tools we have that empower individuals reduces power of these these small centralized entities that exert tons of power around the world and are very often corrupt. So maybe I, I kind of tend to view that we have a lot of, you know, insane people in general. Uh, may, I just, maybe I shouldn't use the word insane, but just a, a lot of crazy There's nothing people. There's the word insane. Um, yeah, but it's like, isn't it like a clinical, whatever, but that's not my point. My point is, yeah, that is true, but the alternative is a small group of people that are corrupt that are running things, right? So my focus for the last 10 years or so has been tools that empower individuals because I think that brings the power back. And and just to talk about how like crazy the corollaries are with your book and our thinking, like this show is called Citadel Dispatch. I called it Citadel Dispatch because we have this idea of Bitcoin citadels, which is like Mm -hmm. extreme localism, self-sustainability, small trade, right? Trade between different localities, uh, distributed power, right? And of course, as I'm reading your book, there was a farm that everyone thought he was crazy and he named it Citadel, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So you're, yeah, you're 95% there on everything, Um. Except well, one Bitcoin. thing, one thing that this book rarely gets credit for is having a, a happy ending. And yes. the it was positively unlike me, but we can't forget that I fundamentally created a utopia in uh, Nevada. Yeah, and Nevada uh, of all places, and well, perfect place culturally, perfect place. And of course, my my utopia doesn't have to do with everyone is a, in a community with everyone else and and everyone contributes everything that they can. And then there are all these people who can't contribute anything and are totally dependent. You know, it's not a liberal utopia. It's a libertarian utopia. And people take care of themselves. And they if they want to, they can take care of other people on an individual level. But basically, it's there's no welfare state. You're on your own. And it's much more functional than a society that, yep. that says, well, you know what? You don't really have to work. And if you don't work, we're going to support you and you can have a house and we'll give you a salary. And, and then expects everybody to work. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Yep. 
Um, so I, you know, I had, uh, I had, a, I had fun putting that together. And then of course in, uh, in my, uh, Nevada, which has seceded from the rest of the country, uh, it has a 10% flat tax and I'm big on flat taxes. I, but then uh, you, yeah, I think Same. progressive, progressive taxes are larceny and also, uh, unfair and, uh, discourage people from earning money and also encourage people to cheat. So a flat tax that you really can't escape. I, I, I think it's brilliant. Uh, one of the countries that employs it is Estonia. It's not 10%. It's 20%, I think 20 or 21. Um, but it works great. And it means that everyone contributes to their communal, uh, requirements and 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 that's quite different from having half the country mooching off the other half right and it, it, it it's a better social relationship and it also means that the, if everyone is contributing something then they care about how the money is spent it's it's what government was supposed to be and hardly ever is so that's my you know that's my little utopia and of course the very last line of the book gives you the idea when the flat tax goes up to 11% that this isn't going to last. It's a crack utopia. in the utopia. Yeah. The, the utopias never last. Um, but it was, it was a, it was fun after all the, all the aggro, all the loss, all the people dying uh, to have a more of a, almost a fairy tale ending. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I mean, so what do we unpack there? The the idea of I, people think I'm like anti-government, right? I'm anti-large corrupt governments, right? When you have smaller local governance, there's more accountability, right? And that's kind of what you captured at the end there is as they got larger, um, as a result, the cycle starts to repeat itself again. And, and it's and Bitcoin is is this idea that I constantly hone in on, is this idea of broken incentives, that if you look throughout society, the majority of the issues we have are, are based somewhere along the line on some broken incentive. And how can we make those incentives stronger? How can we make them more aligned? How can we make them more robust so that society actually can function properly and function fairly? Um, and And so when you have smaller governance, in general, when the governance is more local, those incentives are much stronger. Those are stronger, cleaner incentives. And as a result, you have less corruption and you have more efficient governance. Do you agree on that? Um, up to a point, though, I see this in the UK a lot. There's another side to be argued in that uh, there's nothing... Uh, you never get worse petty tyranny than local government <laughs> uk go, go local government is um dictatorial and irrational and run by people who uh are are, are poorly qualified for making the kind of decisions they're making so yeah, you, you see that in like hoas in america a lot where they like tell you you can't HOA? have homeowners association where they like tell you uh, you can't have a bird feeder out front exactly. it's like seven exactly. strangers no you cannot you paint 
paint your post box yeah. pink. This doesn't fit with our scheme. Right. Um, and you get a lot of that. And uh, I mean, I don't know a lot about local government in the U.S. right now, so I will just vouch for the British ones. And they're 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 tyrannical. Um, they're always out to make money. Like they, they'll they'll give you a hundred quid ticket for littering if you if you drop the the wrapper around your chewing gum. Uh, they're uh, they they go after you for you know they make it impossible right. to park anywhere, and so that if you even stop, you get another hundred quid ticket. I mean, they're just hideous, and um, and often quite corrupt. You know, giving planning permission for this, that, and the other thing only to their friends. So that's the other side of the whole localism thing. I'm I'm of two minds about it. Theoretically, I like the idea of local government. In practice, I see it. Uh, I see it as petty tyranny all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not perfect. Everything has trade-offs. It, it, it has something to do with competition, mobility. Uh, there's something there in terms of like uh, account, like having proper accountability because those issues seem to stem from, you know, there's being no accountability there, no competition or, or little competition. People don't... Oh, well, it's I hard think one of, the, one of the most exciting things that we've witnessed in the United States recently, just because of the way things are set up. Uh, and we have for now freedom of movement, um, is, is this huge, uh, exodus from high tax states and, and, and toward low tax states and also states that are more interested in Liberty. So there's less regulation. So obviously, you know, Texas and, and Florida in particular, and uh, w- watching California and New York lose population is... Yeah, I did that myself. very I moved, satisfying. I moved from New York to Tennessee. Did yes, the same that's thing. the other state. Yeah. And, I, and uh, good for you, and New York deserves it. Yeah, I mean, you nailed that part. I mean, that was very prescient. I mean, you also nailed the movement passes with the brain plant chip that they like pushed on everybody. Oh yes. Coming to a theater near you. Um, We saw that in 2020. I mean, they, they were, it was rudimentary at the time, right? It's like paper passes. Right. But if they could, if they could put it in an implant, they would have done it. Well, of course, this whole idea of chipping, I probably didn't make it up. It was already clearly on its way, but I thought my my innovation was an important one, and that's where it was forward-looking, and that is that the chips could also be implanted with your assets, with your money, and They're therefore make it possible for the government to extract money from you, basically from the air. So it's your money is in the back of your head, and the government can just reach in and take it. And it's so convenient. Isn't it? Yeah. In fact, a lot of a lot of the kind of top-down tyranny that is being inflicted on us is in the name of convenience. Yep. And people are suckers for it. They really are. They really are. It's something I've noticed very much so. It's very obvious. And it's one of the things like with Bitcoin is that we're focused on is, you know, try and make it. It'll never be more convenient than the 
you know, centralized, surveilled, controlled bullshit, but um, try and make it as convenient as possible. Uh, because ultimately, as as long as there's friction there, less people will use it. Um, we have 15 minutes left, uh, Lionel. I want to talk with you more about Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> okay. Because you're there. You're do more of the, the talking. Well, you're there. Uh, so let's let's so gold. Uh, first thing they did with gold was well, first thing in the book was cut off cut off the ability for Americans to move assets around the world, right? Mm. They cut people off from doing that. Um, the way it's I all, like to look, yeah, go on. You're saying they have done that? Or no, they in, will the, do that? in the mandibles, that's one of the first yes, things they course, did. Yes, capital controls. Yeah. Right, capital that's, controls. That's pretty easy to institute at a stroke. Right. And so, by the way, yeah, it's on. already a little tricky to move American assets around the world. If you I'm do well anything aware. with more than with ten thousand dollars or more, you you have to report it to, you know, Daddy. And it's getting automatically reported left and right. All of these systems are already surveilled and controlled. And, um, and over here, you know, I just did my U.S. taxes. Um, if you live abroad, you are legally obliged. Yep to report every single bank account. And by the way, they don't want you to just mention it that you have bank accounts. You have to give the name of the bank, the address, the exact highest amount, even if it was only that high for 15 minutes, and the closing amount, um, and the and the account number. So I mean that's you don't even have to you don't have to do that with US assets yet. Um, but with foreign ones, they have to know everything. And the fines for not reporting that are fantastically high. So, you know, and, and, and furthermore, there are a lot of countries where banks will no longer take American depositors. Right. Because it's not only the individual uh, account holder who has to re repeat, report to the U.S. government, but so does the foreign bank who doesn't want to have to mess with the fucking IRS, right? Yeah, too much liability. Yeah, well, it's huge amounts of paperwork. It's not worth it. I mean, they're just not going to make enough money off of you to make up for the bother and irritation of having to report to a, a foreign government. So they just tell you that they won't hold your money. And it puts a lot of uh, expats in uh, in a very awkward position to the point where actually there there are countries where Americans really can't function, can't live. And by the way, the other issue is this business of the federal government uh, telling American expats who may not even set foot in the United States all year that regardless, they have to report their worldwide income yep. to the American government and pay taxes on it. And, and the system by which you're not supposed to be double taxed is highly imperfect and perfect and patchy. So, and if you renounce your citizenship, you have to pay an exit tax equivalent to selling all your assets at the time of exit. That's right. They've they've sewn that up too because the number of people who are Americans who are renouncing their citizenship is really starting to soar, and so they're going to make you pay. And this is again, this is government able to do anything. So they could also tell you, well. Um, you can leave the country, but your assets can't. We're going to keep them. So that's essentially what they're doing. 
It's impossible to get away from these people. Bitcoin fixes this. So I, I so. so you mentioned lack of property rights at the core of all of this. Uh, the way I like to look at Bitcoin is that it enforces property rights at the level of code. It's code that enforces property rights. At the core, that's what it is. Um, <coughs> we already see people using Bitcoin to escape capital controls. Uh, you know, China has, has famously banned Bitcoin uh, 25, 30 times. Um, Chinese nationals still to this day use Bitcoin to transfer money in and out of their country. Um, you can send it as easy as a text message. Hmm. Um, that is uh, a core value prop of Bitcoin is this, this ability to send without permission. Um, another core property of Bitcoin is that no one can change the supply of Bitcoin. So you talked about earlier um, this idea that you work hard and you don't want to be a financial planner. You don't want to study economics. You don't want to watch CNBC. You don't want to pick stocks. You know, you just want to do what you love, work, and be with your family and save up money for the future so that you're able to you know, buy the things you need to live, the necessities you need to live, and the things you want to enjoy. Um, Bitcoin, because no one can change the supply, because it's ultimately a fixed supply asset, um, allows people to save in this, save in this asset, save in Bitcoin, uh, and long term hold that value without having to be a financial professional. Like I hear that all the time. People are like, oh, I don't, you know, Bitcoin doesn't interest me. I'm not interested in finance. Like that's the point. The point is, it's it's absolutely insane that people need to and feel the need to either be a financial planner or hire one in order to save for their future. They should be able to just hold the money that increases in purchasing power over time. And people think I'm crazy when I say that about Bitcoin, but historically that has been the case. Now there is volatility. Um, there's short-term volatility, but it's a scarce asset going through an adoption phase. We have over 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, maybe 50 million own Bitcoin. Of course it's going to be volatile short-term. The world is volatile. Mm -hmm. But on a longer-term basis, Bitcoin's purchasing power has shown to increase. I expect it to continue that trend. Um, so it's a, it's a great savings vehicle. It's a great spending vehicle. And then now the third thing, and we saw this in the mandibles, is seizure resistance. This idea that governments will come and they will try and take your money from you in times of chaos. Um, we saw you had in the mandibles, you had police officers or military men come door to door and basically look for people's gold. They went that far. Mm -hmm. Now, can they do that with Bitcoin? Yes, they can do that with Bitcoin. But you can use Bitcoin in a private way so that they, first of all, don't know you own Bitcoin. And second of all, do know you own Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin is code, we have this ability to essentially split up the keys that require that 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 give you give you control of the bitcoin right so bitcoin is crazy rabbit hole lionel and i look forward to you going down and i'm happy to answer any of your questions after the show but um bitcoin at, at the core is is public key private key cryptography so we have this ledger the blockchain that is that is is keeping track of people's bitcoin ownership around the world it's not attached to a name specifically it's attached to this public key and the private key is what's required to spend it now, without that private key, no one can take your money. So how do you protect that private key? Well, we have many different ways. Um, a lot of people like putting it on steel. 
then it's water and fireproof. But of course, you can have a military guy come in and, and take, take that steel from you. We have this concept called multi-sig, where instead of one private key, you have multiple private keys. You could have five private keys. It might require three of those private keys to spend. Those three could be located in different states. They could be located in different nations. One could be in a cloud drive. One could be on a piece of steel somewhere else. One could be buried in the backyard. Um, so all of a sudden, the seizure capability of, of these governments or other malicious individuals gets significantly reduced. So you have these three facets of Bitcoin, this ability to spend without permission, this ability to save in an asset that increases in purchasing power over time, and this ability to secure the asset, cross borders with this asset in a way that has never been capable with any other money in our history. And all those things combined lend itself to an adversarial environment where trust is eroded, where governments are going after their citizens. And to me, that is where this hope comes from when I read something like the mandibles or I look on the news or just see how the world is going right now. Well, I'm much better on what's wrong than how to fix it. Yes. <laughs> so in a way we've, uh, broken up the job and you work on the positive side and I'll just keep <laughs> on coming up with doomsday scenarios. Deal. Uh, for my own part, uh, for me, this is partially an entertainment because the narrative of collapse is, is so transfixing. Ask any film director. <laughs> um, and otherwise, I don't. I'm. I am leery of getting so anxious about this kind of thing that I that I exhaust my energy on it. And I don't want to spend. You know, I don't want to be one of those people who uh, ends up uh, spending all her energy on a shelter in the backyard and making sure that it is full of you know, right. 300 tins of baked beans. I mean, it, it, our lives are finite and I don't want to spend my life on that, uh, digging a hole in the backyard. So yeah, the only thing more scarce than Bitcoin is time. Yeah. So I am, I am careful about the way I spend my time and that is the ultimate currency of our, of our lives. And, uh, I got a book out of it, out of my own anxiety which is a lot more than just a bunch more anxiety. And I'm very pleased that you seem to have got something out of it. And I'm also very pleased that the people listening to this seem to have enjoyed it and, and certain scenes stuck in their minds. And, um, and you you think you recognized my anxieties and, um, and there's a certain, you know, there's a certain community in that. There's a satisfaction in that. And, you know, it's like the, one of the fun things about being a novelist is sort of like putting a, a a plug in your head while you're dreaming and being able to share it with other people. And that's what that is. And this happens to have been a nightmare, but uh, I had a lot of fun writing it. I should share with you before we go that um, when I first submitted this book to my publisher, my editor absolutely hated it. And uh, she showed it to the publisher, uh, 
and he hated it. He spent he spent 45 minutes on the phone with me telling me all that w- was wrong with it. He couldn't keep track <laughs> of the characters. Uh, and he thought it was incredibly boring. Um, when my editor d- did edit the book, I already had a contract, so it was harder for... They could have gone out of it, but they didn't want to alienate me. So they figured they'd just get over this terrible book. Um, and then when my editor edited it, she basically edited it down to a pamphlet, right? There was nothing left. She hated it so much that she would just put these big X's through page after page. By the way, she was not interested in e- economics. So this was not a book for her, right? And uh, I was told to edit the economics down to nothing, which I did not do. I did pare it down. I think you probably enjoy the original even more because it had more economics in it. Um because that's really what makes the book special. There are any number of dystopic stories out there. Uh, a lot of them are set in New York. So uh, who cares? An, another, you know, society falls apart story. But this was very particular. It is an economic dystopia. And I tried as hard as I could to do my homework and therefore to put together a scenario that was genuinely credible. And I, and I think it is. And that's not something that my publisher remotely appreciated. So when I got this edit, I completely ignored it. I, I, I took none of, none of the advice. I've come to the point where I, I really do my, my own editing. And I'm, I'm my, own, my own best source. Uh, and even still, you know, when, it got, when this book got the cover of the New York Times Book Review, the publisher refused to put any money behind it. It's never had any advertising, nothing. Wow. It's you guys who have done the advertising and, and enthusiasts like you. This is a, almost p- purely a word of mouth book because my publisher ha- has refused to support it. And even through this, you know, the post-Trump thing, because, you know, it was early, later the same year that uh, Trump was el- elected. Right. And everyone was buying these dystopic, fictions did they put any behind it any money behind it then no or have has there been any effort to re-advertise the book now that we really are suffering serious levels of inflation which has directly to do with the overproduction of money in the federal system no so you know it's it is incredible you know about this book because my publisher sure didn't go to any trouble that you would know about it and and even to this day it was not shoved down your throat but it was something that you picked up on uh by by either accident or or having a sharp eye i had a good friend that was a bitcoiner who recommended it to me good well that's that's how most people come across this book and you know what truth is most of my books have been popular because of word of mouth. Uh, I don't Love have it. publishers putting money behind them, but word of mouth means more to me than a pub publishing budget. Grassroots, and it it's it's real. It's not confected, and so I'm very heartened that you and your your colleagues and supporters have latched onto the book. I'm a proud owner of a first edition. My wife got it for me. 
good. Well, if, you, if anything ever diet. happens to it, come to me. I'll get you another one. I've got a lot of them in the attic. I appreciate that, Lionel. Um, and likewise, if you know you ever have any questions about Bitcoin, you know how to reach me now. I'll come right uh, to you. I would love to, you know, at least get you set up with a Bitcoin wallet. Maybe send you a little Bitcoin so you can play around with it. Sure, I'd be open to that. Great. I mean, I saw a bunch of people in the audience wants to send you some Bitcoin, so. It'd be great. Um, awesome. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know time is precious. Uh, do you have any, thank you for coming on. Do you have any final words uh, for the audience? Um, I'd make one tiny plot apology. Hit us. That in truth, the amount of gold that Nolly puts on the back of Willing's bicycle would be so physically heavy that the bike would fall over. <laughs> it's okay though, because Bitcoin would fix that. Right. So yeah, that's the one plot thing that I I think I, I was guilty of using po poetic license. I uh I mean I failed to mention this earlier, but in strictly adversarial scenarios when you're crossing borders or whatnot. You can store Bitcoin in a way where you just think it in your head. As long as you remember the words in your head, when you get across the border, you can then access your Bitcoin. So it's as light as that. You could do a full strip search um, and someone wouldn't even, it could be $20, it could be $100, it could be a billion dollars and no one would find it. No one could take it. Incredibly powerful. Well, I wish you luck. <laughs> Thanks, Lionel. Likewise. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining. Huge shout out to everyone in the audience. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you guys for being a massive part of this show and joining us in the live chat. If for some reason you haven't bought mandibles yet, consider buying it. Um, I will set up Lionel with a Bitcoin wallet and I'll let you guys know her address if you want to send her some money. Um, thank you all for supporting the show. Till next time, stay humble and stack sats. Thanks, Lionel. So long.